I had no idea what you looked like. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, speaking of that Boston Tea Party, uh, where I now reside, uh, it may interest you that the um, Boston Massacre, that was one of the triggering events of the American Revolution, led to a trial um, in which John Adams later became President of the United States, of course. John Adams was the attorney for the British Army um, against the rebels who he described uh, in his summation in court as a group, a motley group of colored boys, Irish tags, that's Irish Catholics, saucy boys, I think those are like hippies, and jack tars, um, mutinous uh, navy men. Irish tags, colored boys, jack tars, and saucy boys. And we won, the motley ones won, but Adams became president of our new country. Which brings me to the subject that I'm here to discuss. What are the relations between these uprisings and movements and politics um, on the eve of this election? Uh, I want to start with a quote uh, by Richard Myers, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, who says this, uh, intelligence doesn't necessarily mean something is true. I mean, that's not what intelligence is. With that as kind of an overarching framework, <laughs> let me begin. I was in Cancun uh, recently, and at the, the first day of demonstrations, uh, there were thousands of campesinos from southern Mexico, primarily from other parts of the world as well, and they were led by uh, a group of South Korean farmers who were being dispossessed, and they were there with a wagon that w was uh, uh, embellished with kind of a dragon uh, on it, and they went to the fence, and I watched this man uh, waving his fist, I thought, and uh, did not know until hours later that he was committing ritual suicide. I picked up casually a WTO press release that said they regretted the tragic death of a South Korean farmer of a self-inflicted wound that had occurred during a uh, NGO meeting. I, I asked the uh, trade representative of the United States government the next day if he considered um, reconsidering any of his policies because the president of a South Korean farmers association had committed suicide and that people were dying over these trade policies. And he said no one had brought that up and it was a tragic event. And I started wondering how many deaths and suicides and other tragedies are going on in the world that we don't have the eyes to see. And I, I don't know. There are pesticide poisonings in India that lead to suicide, self-inflicted, taking American pesticides. There are farmer suicides in America. There are soldier suicides in disproportionate numbers now, you know, in Iraq, American soldiers. There are unmentioned uh, Iraqi deaths. People dying all the time for work, for water, for their children. Um, the other side of it, of course, as um, uh, was just stated, uh, is that a lot of these deaths and a lot of these tragedies are birth pangs 
uh, of a new social order. There's a way in which uh, only through suffering and destruction, the will to live and to know what we're living for is regenerated. Eighty, a hundred, I don't know how many dead in these protests in Bolivia in the last three weeks, but these are people that have suffered for five or six hundred years under conquest. And the people now, the um, uh, sweatshop workers there, the indigenous people, the Indians, um, have now overthrown their government and sent the uh, president of their country, a U.S. trained economist, mine owner, uh, packing. Uh, so there's a rising. There's a, there's a thing that's unseen. The thing that's unseen is that there's a rising in the world, a new movement in the world, that is perhaps the largest in a hundred years. Uh, I, can, I can say this with some accuracy because I was there the last time in January 1960, and I'm glad to still be standing, and I couldn't believe it when I uh, saw the tear gas and saw the young people who were the backbone of the street demonstrations in Seattle in 1999. Uh, and I knew that I'd never, I, I, I was a lucky, I was a blessed person to be able to live uh, through such events, uh, not once but twice. This is what history feels like. This is what's happening. And yet, it's a thing unseen. Nobody predicted the 1960s in 1960. We now have two interrelated movements that have risen. And I, I want to discuss them today, uh, very briefly if I can. One is, of course, the global peace movement against the war in Iraq and against the emergence of an American ambition for empire. Uh, that was unseen. For instance, last October, you will remember, at this time last year, there were 100,000 people on the streets of Washington, D.C., and both NPR and the New York Times, which I bet many of you rely on for information, for intelligence, reported that they weren't there. The New York Times actually reported that no one came because they were afraid of the sniper, and that the organizers were really, uh, really upset that so few people had turned up. Both the New York Times and NPR had to apologize the next week and recalculate and announce that 100,000 people had been there. How could they not have seen these unseen things? I don't know. By February, though, there had been an adjustment, and the New York Times went the other way and announced on the front page something that I'm sure boosted everybody's organizational self-esteem. They announced that pu public opinion was the other superpower, uh, that we had reached the status of the White House. And it was true. If you look at the world in terms of things that are not seen, if you look at what goes on that drives the behavior of nation states at the United Nations, for example, there were 10 million people on the streets this February around the world. There were two and a half million in Rome. There were a million and a half in London. There were 900,000 in Spain. There were 50 or 75 at the McMurdo uh, station in Antarctica, and so on. There, were, there was an amazing turnout. Um, Montreal, I was just in Montreal. There were 200,000 people in the streets in Montreal. It's 30 below zero. The second related strand is the global justice movement. This global justice movement seemed to emerge 
Again, out of the vacuum after the Cold War, the decline of communism, when movements were supposed to therefore be dead because there were no longer Soviet spies and instigators and Soviet money pouring into these countries. Uh, but there they were again, starting with the Zapatistas, rising on the first day that NAFTA was implemented. And from there, they said these are isolated uprisings. Seattle, that was an isolated uprising. Then there was Genoa, another isolated uprising. Then there was Quebec City. Then there was Quito, Ecuador. Then there was Cancun. And next in November, there will be Miami. Some isolation. These are really the battlefields on which history is being played out. They are not isolated events. And together, <laughs> together they are a, a challenge uh, to a, a very deep, very profound, and hopefully dying uh, worldview. Uh, uh, that goes beyond the United States. It may be enshrined in the United States in particular, but it's not limited to uh, our country. And this view is sort of the, the Earth uh, as a storehouse of materials for utilitarian exploitation. And those who are privileged are kind of like the lords of the universe, and they are now becoming as threatened as the, uh, uh, the kings and the monarchs in the time of the American Revolution, the divine, the divine right of kings was threatened, and now uh, what's being threatened is the notion that some people are the lords of the universe. And a new worldview that we're talking about that represents an, an enlargement of dignity, really when you get to, through the taking, through the expression, through direct action, an enlargement of dignity, an enlargement of what we consider sacred, an enlargement of things that we think are off limits for negotiation, off the table, whether they're the treasures of Babylon or the rainforest, the Amazon, or the culture of Tibet, or the culture of Celtic spirituality, that's the issue. Utilitarian or intrinsic value. Why is this happening? You know, I, I'm half activist and half scholar. I have never found anybody to fully explain why these things happen. I think the globalization of U.S. military and economic power dialectically produces a globalized opposition. It's a dialectical process that creates resistance on the natural that uh, comes up in consumer behavior and political resistance, in movements, in new visions, and so on. Uh, so the very dialectic of globalization creates its opposite. That's how I would put it. And with this, this is a very powerful force. Uh, or these forces in, in contradiction are very, very powerful. And I think, actually, that George Bush um, can be beaten by this force, can be caught in the tangles of this force by being so one-sidedly uh, enraptured, and I'm, I choose the verb carefully, enraptured in the notion of globalization. Are the Crusades really over for George Bush? You know, there was that little slip of the tongue. I let it go on that about we're in a crusade. Then I noticed at the inauguration of uh, this George Bush, there was Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, presiding over the inauguration and denouncing Islamic people as uh, scandalous and salacious and all the rest, and announcing that the quadrupling of missionaries had occurred since the first uh, Iraq war. And then if you look at this national security strategy, the official 2002 document that the White House has to issue periodically. There was much talk about the preemptive Bush doctrine, 
Nobody really looked at the fact that in this national security strategy, the principles for which we will commit our armed forces, the principles for which uh, this country stands, at the top of the list is the free market and free trade and the free trade agreement of the Americas as moral principles that have to be defended as part of national security, as part of what the document itself says is a single that there's a single sustainable model for national success. That's in the national security document. As Thomas Friedman, who is the most brilliant apologist, and, or at least uh, uh, thinks so himself for globalization, uh, has pointed out, uh, and I'm quoting Tom Friedman, the hidden hand of the market will never work without a hidden fist. McDonald's cannot flourish without McDonald's Douglas. There you have it. There you have it. Take the example of Iraq. What's Iraq about? It's about many things, but part, in part, it's about the privatization of the entire public sector. And is the, is the anti-war movement aware of this? We're aware of Halliburton and Cheney. Good. We're aware that U.S. contractors will get the, uh, the gravy here, the contracts. But are we fully aware and deeply aware of the fact that this is about uh, the assumed right as part of national security to completely eliminate all state-owned enterprises and all public sector uh, economic activities of Iraq uh, and replace them with a four, except for oil, that's, that's temporarily in play, but everything else, and replace them with a free market uh, as Bremer says, Bremer, the man in the pinstripe shoot, suit with the army boots that you see walking around, the representative of Kissinger Associates, he's talking about the goal in Iraq is a free market economy. He is implementing the national security strategy. We have to be aware of this. The relation between this policy and our lives domestically has not gone unnoticed. People are starting to feel the effect of the escalated military budget, the tax, uh, tax cuts, trillion dollars, the uh, half trillion in deficits. But are people fully aware that this is not an accident or a necessity of war, but this is part of a, a plan that has to be carried out with discretion because it would be so controversial? And the plan is essentially to defund government programs defund the Great Society, defund the New Deal, and return to a society in which market values are supreme. For example, Grover Norquist, who is one of the right-wing Republican strategists who runs a little group on tax reform, sounds innocent enough, uh, let it slip. He considers himself kind of a generalissimo in this uh, right-wing crusade. He said recently that um, if we can get enough tax cuts out there and, and get government spending down, we'll arrive at the point, and this is a direct quote, when we can drown the baby in the bathtub. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about child care, health care, public education, public investment in inner cities, public investment in restoration of the environment, public goods, which he thinks have to be banished in the drive to make the market supreme in everything. And, ban and this is the good news. Banished discreetly because of a fear of a reaction from the American public. 
that doesn't buy this program, that does not believe that all things should be for sale. <clears throat> but it gets twisted. Let me give you an example. Um, Niall Ferguson, remember this fellow. He's written a big book on empire. He comes close to saying the American Revolution was a mistake. We should have stayed with the British. But leave that aside. He's one of the best writers on the subject. He's constantly in the New York Times. He's constantly described as kind of an objective uh, commentator on our times. Um, he, he recently wrote a piece um, extolling the Protestant ethic. Uh, and the piece was about the conflict between the United States and Europe. If you're not following, I'll get right to the point here, that Europeans don't go to church as much as Americans and don't follow the Protestant ethic it's not as deeply embedded in the European soul as it is in the American soul. And therefore, what's the tragedy here? They have longer vacations. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? Here's the article. If we buy into this notion that the Europeans are our enemies and we're all alone because the Europeans are lazy, shiftless people, we deserve the fate that we're going to get, which is more overtime, longer time on the job. We should be standing for the Canadianization of health care and the Europeanization of our vacations. <laughs> These are not alien ideas on American soil. They might be 45% in a presidential campaign, but 45% is a lot of people. There is an American root to all this. There were Americans who, at the very beginning, opposed the brutal settlement to this country. There were Americans who, at the very beginning, opposed the installation of slavery. There were Americans, at the very beginning, who opposed second-class status for women. There were Americans at the very beginning who opposed annexation of the Western Plains. There were Americans at the beginning who opposed the annexation and the wars with Mexico and the Philippines and Cuba. Bioneers honors that history, and it's just as important to restore that history as to restore our, biologic, our biological heritage. These are the heirlooms of our history, the heirlooms of American resistance. Despite all the spin, the play on patriotic feelings, the fear of terror, a majority of Americans and a strong majority of Democrats question the purpose of Iraq, the deaths, the cost, the domestic impact, civil liberties impacts, environmental neglect. Bush can be beaten. Now, I don't know. This, it's one thing to say that, that's for sure. It's another thing to say whether the Democratic Party can beat him. I don't know the answer to the second question. That's up to all of us. But you'll notice that the Democratic candidates have changed their themes somewhat in the last year, and that's in response to your good work in changing the political climate. Last year, remember, the leadership of the Democratic Party was counseling everyone to vote for the war, to get in line. It would be over shortly. There would be cheering in the streets of Baghdad, and we could return to galvanizing issues like uh, prescription drugs for the elderly and somehow defeat the conquering Bush 
by bringing him back to those issues. They were as wrong as any paid pundits could possibly be. And it was only public opinion at the grassroots and the drag effect of the activists of the Green Party as well that pulled these candidates in the direction of becoming war questioners. And you know those magic words from the Porto Alegre conference, another world is possible, were spoken this year in French by the foreign minister of France at the UN when they turned down the US aspiration for Iraq. Um, if we don't win this election, we can advance our cause and our lives will be better for it. If we don't win, we can still end the war, we can stop the empire in its tracks, we can reform or derail the WTO. Remember this, throughout our history, those with the power have been forced ultimately to make huge concessions. McGovern lost, SDS burned out, but Nixon retreated from Vietnam. Nixon recognized China. Nixon gave us the 18-year-old vote, the end of the draft, the creation of the EPA, OSHA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Bush, not so good as Nixon yet, but because <laughs> Bush won with the Supreme Court, but the, the same Supreme Court has ruled now in favor of the gay lesbian community on sodomy laws. After 40 years, that started with riots in Greenwich Village, I might add. And the recent court decisions on medical marijuana are also concessions to the direction of opinion in this country. So it really comes down to standing firm and knowing who we are. It comes to the dignity of all things and the resistance of dignity to oblivion. That's the world we want. That's the world the world wants. It can be delayed. It can be deformed, can't be denied. Many people will suffer, many people will die unnecessarily, and I know many tears will be shed. But dignity will never die because dignity doesn't have a price tag. It has intrinsic value. It's you. Thank you very, very much. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.